I'm Jesse Lubinsky. I'm Donnie Piercy. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Heil, hosts of the Partial Credit Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with George Stevens Jr. Oh my gosh, you're going to love this talk. He has such an amazing legacy on the history of the U.S. Uh, from movies and television to uh, creating the American Film Institute and the Kennedy Center Honors. And you're going to love this talk. Uh, George shares his book, My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. What an amazing read. What an impact he and his father and family have had on the world of the arts. So much to learn. You're going to want to run out and get a copy of this book today, whether audio or hard copy or uh, digital. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, by the way, before you go, um, it would be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, eh, maybe five stars. And how about uh, saying a few nice words? Hmm? <laughs> Think you could do that? That'd be so cool. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for sharing and uh, enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Maletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dot Stimoletto. George Stevens Jr. has achieved an extraordinary creative legacy over a career spanning more than 60 years. He is a writer, director, producer, playwright, and author. He has enriched the film and television arts as a filmmaker and is widely credited with bringing style and taste to the national television events he has conceived. As a writer, director, and producer, Stevens has earned many accolades, including 15 Emmys, two Peabody Awards for Meritorious Service to Broadcasting, the Humanitas uh, Prize, and eight awards from the Writers Guild of America, including the Paul Selvin Award for writing that embodies civil rights and liberties. In 2012, the Board of Governors of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences voted to present Stevens with an honorary Academy Award for Extraordinary Distinction in Lifetime Achievement. Stevens served for eight years as co-chairman of the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities following his appointment by President Obama in 2009. Stevens is founding director of the American Film Institute, and during his tenure, more than 10,000 irreplaceable American films were preserved and cataloged to be enjoyed by future generations. In addition, he established the AFI's Center for Advanced Film Studies, which gained a reputation as the finest learning opportunity for young filmmakers. Stevens was executive producer of The Thin Red Line, which was nominated for seven Academy Awards awards, including Best Picture. He co-wrote and produced The Murder of Mary Fagan, starring uh, Jack Lemmon, which received the Emmy for Outstanding Miniseries. He wrote and directed Separate But Equal, starring Sidney Poitier and uh, Burt Lancaster, which also won the Emmy for Outstanding Miniseries. He produced an acclaimed feature-length film about his father, George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey, and in 1994 produced George Stevens' D-Day to Berlin, which depicted the wartime experiences of his father, one of the most highly regarded directors of all time. In collaboration with his son and partner Michael Stevens, he produced the feature-length documentary Herb Block, The Black and the White on the famed political cartoonist Herbert Block for HBO. Stevens made his debut as a playwright in 2008 with Thurgood, which opened at the historic Booth Theater on Broadway. The play had an extended run starring Lawrence Fishburne as Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Fishburne received a Tony nomination and returned to the role in the, in the summer of 2010 with runs at the Kennedy Center and the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. Thurgood was filmed while at the Kennedy Center and shown on HBO in 2011. In 2006, Alfred A. Knopf published Stevens' conversations with the great movie makers of Hollywood's golden age, the first book to bring together the interviews of master movie makers from the American Film Institute's renowned Harold Lloyd Master Seminar Series. Conversations with the great movie makers, The Next Generation, was released by Knopf in April 2012. Stevens resides in Washington, D.C. For more information, you go to georgestevensjr.com, and I'll have that in my show notes. Uh, Mr. Stevens, George, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Well, good. It's very nice being with you, and I look forward to uh, having a little conversation. Well, I can't thank you enough, and it's a pleasure meeting you. And I got to tell you, your family is is part of the fabric of history of our country. I I mean, you and your father talked, worked, and shared time with some of the most famous members of our our cultural, uh, political, and the arts. Uh, Something that you mentioned in your book, My Place in the Sun, is 
when as a kid you noticed that your family was different than others and i was wondering if you could i thought this was kind of interesting as uh, you noticed that uh, hey this this is not the, a regular family here <laughs> there's some different <laughs> things going on i thought that was funny could you could you share some of the those thoughts with us well I'm, yeah, I, I do remember when i was in the i guess the first grade or i was just starting in school and the uh, teacher asked all the children to uh, talk about their fathers and, and to tell what their fathers did. And I said, well, my father's a director. And the teacher said, well, what, what, what does a director do? And I had no idea. You know, it was just, <laughs> I was stuck for an answer. But I later learned that he was leading a rather fascinating, creative life, making uh, motion pictures. It's so cool. I mean, because it had to be uh, as as you're getting a little bit older, as you start realizing there's there's a, there's a little different stuff going on here. And as you recall that in the book, which is is is, yeah. is fascinating. Um, the uh, you know, and I I got to say kudos to you. Your book, uh, My Place in the Sun, is easy to read and engaging. You wanna you wanna keep reading. So uh, um, it's awesome. You know, well, I've, I set out I set out to write it because um, you know I I've had a career that's been in in many different areas you know um both in hollywood and washington um and then having written it i now realize uh something i didn't realize when i started it and that is that uh that that my wife elizabeth and i have had so many fascinating associations partly because of you know my growing up in hollywood uh, she in Washington, and that uh, I uh, he doing the founding the American Film Institute. You know, our life was around the most important people in film, and then starting the Kennedy Center Honors in Washington at the Kennedy Center. Um, you know, we honored about two hundred of the most fascinating creative people in American history. So it turns out that my book, as I now read it, I, I just had to read it aloud because I recorded the audio version. But it's these people um, who we met and worked with uh, that have given me such an interesting life. And so I've enjoyed telling stories about, uh, you know, people I've worked with, Sidney Poitier and Jack Lemmon and, well, gosh, just so many people um, that we can talk about. It's so amazing. And it's, uh, you know, just a note in the, um, the timing of certain things that happened in there, you mentioned, uh, uh, famous, uh, cowboy actor, uh, Joel McRae. And, uh, yeah. I actually, my life ran into him in, um, in the eighties where you're talking about how he had come to Washington and, and a couple of different things. And I was like, now that's interesting. Cause I was in New Mexico. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm actually got to know his uh, son and uh, his wife and his family because I, w- um, I was friends with his granddaughter. And it was just, when I, was, I was read that name and I was like, oh, this is cool because uh, I've since seen lots of his movies and stuff. But at the time, I didn't know who he was. And uh, uh, I didn't know actually who I was meeting, which I found out uh, the next year. But uh, anyway, it, it was cool. As you see the different, uh, different people, like you said, and we'll get into some of that in just a minute. Uh, you know, one of the, things your your father directed some of the most memorable films from the golden age of hollywood a place in the sun shane giant and more uh, a place in the sun as a special place in history i was wondering if you could talk about that yeah well i'll tell it from a personal standpoint my father was away at war for three years um he had it he headed combat photography for general eisenhower for the d-day invasion and <clears throat> and the war in europe um he, when he came back I, uh, I even started to work with him and he, um, just one summer I needed a job after graduating from high school. And he, he said, I want you to break down Theodore Dreiser's an American tragedy, a great American novel, um, and put it in all the characters and details and two notebooks. And I did that because he was preparing to write the screenplay that would be called A Place in the Sun and for which he'd win his first Oscar. Um, and a movie that starred Elizabeth Taylor, Montgomery Clift and Shelley Winters. Uh, and that was really my 
first sort of serious introduction into the movie world. And an interesting aspect of that is uh, in 1952, I went to the Academy Awards with my father and we sat next to one another. And the winner from the previous year for best director, Joseph Mankiewicz, came on the stage to announce the nominees for best director. And it was John Huston for, Af- for the African Queen, William Wyler for Detective Story, Vincent Minnelli for An American in Paris, Elia Kazan for A Streetcar Named Desire, and George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. Well, George Stevens won that night. But driving home, i never forget it, the Oscar was on the seat between us. I must have been about 17 or 18. And he looked over at me and he said, we'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. And he was talking about the test of time. And he realized, having grown up in the theater, that great art is not how it's received this year, it's how it's received over time. And that's one reason I call the book My Place in the Sun, the Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington, uh, because that was such an important film in his life and mine. As, uh, I appreciate you telling that story, and it's, it's such an interesting, uh, as you recall things that are happening and you talk about them, and you just it gives you a better feel for, for the movie and such. And I would think that he was feeling pretty good about 25 years down the road after, after that, he realized that it definitely. Just a couple of years ago, a place in the sun celebrated its 70th anniversary. Uh, You know, it's still uh, regarded as one of the great films and that's seen often on Turner classic movies and, and streaming. Yes. What's so cool? They, uh, you know, Shane was a, a another movie that he did. It was a western, and um, most people know the ending of it as the little boys wanting Shane to not go away and return. And you recall some, by the way, a very yeah. funny story in there about the um, the dog and the character um, that's being buried, and the dog won't have anything to do with it. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> which now I I've it, it's funny rewatching that scene and stuff like this now, knowing that information, but. Uh, Shane was a little bit different as a Western too. the Westerns that came prior to it. What was it that, uh, can you talk a little bit about what made it different? Yeah. I mean, my father came back from the war. He, he, he saw one movie during three years having before he left and he was well over draft age. He asked, he asked to be commissioned and to go to be in combat. Um, but, uh, he came back and then he'd, he'd see Western movies and he'd see people get shot, you know, and kind of lean over and then get back up and shoot some more. And he'd seen what a, what a 45 a bullet, what a single bullet could do. And in Shane, he really made that point in such a dramatic way uh, with the killing of the little Southerner uh, by the, the gunman played by Jack Palance. And, and he wanted the audience to identify uh, that, that a gun was a weapon of violence. And he said, you know, for a shooting, for a shooting for us in this film is a Holocaust. And I want the audience to feel that. So when they shot the scene and they had the street all muddy in this little one-sided street, we shot up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And and Stonewall Tory, the character played by Elisha Cook, they put a harness around him under his shirt. And when he was walked through the mud and then faced Jack Palance uh, and was shot, they had a wire coming out of the back of his shirt and four stagehands who just yanked him back into the mud. You know, and for the first time in a film, people saw the real impact of a gunshot like that. Wow. And it really became a, a kind of a transforming thing. And it was a, a basis, one of the reasons he made the film. That's awesome. That's because, uh, you know, if you watch a lot of the early Westerns, you know, some of them in the fight scenes, the hat stays on the head. And, you know, it's like, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little different from some reality there, but, uh, um, yeah. cool stuff. The, uh, well, I love the stories that, uh, you recall about those. And one of the stories that you tell, by the way, and we're going to come back to your father in World War II, but I got to share this one because, uh, um, you talk about, uh, um, you must've had such jealous friends because you created a friendship with Elizabeth Taylor and actually took her to dinner in a, in a car and driving out and about. And I mean, can you, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, the beginning of your friendship um, with Elizabeth Taylor that continued? Well, that I, the, my first year in high school, uh, uh, they were, <clears throat> had started filming a place in the sun, actually my second year. And I went over to the studio on a Saturday to visit when they had just started shooting and was on a soundstage. And my father was there. He was working with Elizabeth and Montgomery Clift on a scene. And, uh, and I was introduced to Elizabeth. Uh, and she were, we were both 17 years old. And she was clearly the most, the most beautiful woman on the planet. Uh, and then when they broke for lunch, uh, to my great surprise, she came over and said, would you like to go to the commissary? So I found myself walking down the studio street with this extraordinary uh, young woman. Uh, and we went into the commissary and I followed in her wake and we sat down and everybody was kind of looking at her <laughs> as she entered. And uh, uh, and we had... Uh, she said, what would you like? And I said, well, I, you know, I kind of paused and she said, well, I'm going to have a hamburger and a chocolate milkshake. And I said, that's fine. Let's do that. And so I had that uh, wonderful experience and I was able to go back to uh, um, Occidental College where I was studying to a degree and, uh, uh, and tell about my luncheon with Elizabeth. I cannot, I cannot imagine what that, that conversation was like, because uh, uh, I'm sure you had a lot of people's attention, that's for sure, especially because, <laughs> um, uh, you know, her career spanned for a long time, too. And, uh, but uh, and, yeah. and just that message, uh, just that time frame, uh, very famous. <laughs> and later, I, I, I had the opportunity of presenting Elizabeth with the American Film Institute Life Achievement Award for her yes. career in film. And also honoring her at the Kennedy Center Honors. Um, so we were in touch th throughout her life. That's so awesome. Um, so awesome. They, you know, uh, let's, let's go back now. Let's go back in time and uh, talk a little bit about, because you mentioned your father in World War II. I mean, could you talk about the role that your father played in U.S. history in the world when he put aside a, a top Hollywood career to join the Army and document the war in Europe and the con the the atrocities of the concentration camps. Could you talk a little about what he did? Yes. Well, in the early forties, um, uh, he'd been making uh, wonderful pictures, Penny Serenade, the talk, the talk, talk of the town, Gunga Dean, um, woman of the year, the more the merrier. And, but he, one night he was in a screening room at Columbia pictures and he asked to see, uh, Leni Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. She was a woman director in Germany who made this kind of pageant of Hitler and the Hitler youth and the German army, a, a propaganda film. And my father saw that and realized for him that he could not stay in Hollywood when this war was going on overseas. So he did, he took a commission. And as I said earlier, was in charge of the combat photography for D-Day, uh, the battles in Normandy, the liberation of Paris, uh, the Battle of the Bulls, the link up with the Russians at the Elbe River, and uh, the freeing of the concentration camp at Dachau. So as he said, uh, he had a 50-yard line seat and saw men at their best and at their worst during World War II. Um, so it was a very important experience for him. And he came back, as anyone would, after three years at war, uh, with a slightly different view of the world, a deeper view, let's say. And his pictures became uh, more ambitious, more serious. 
I appreciate you recalling that. It's, it's amazing because uh, a lot of people, I, I think, don't realize that a lot of those um, images that they see were thanks to your father and his crew taking and making sure that those that we saw the reality and we can still see. Exactly. And, and very importantly, when they got to Dachau and, you know, this horrific thing that was discovered there, that there were, that was the first concentration camp that was uh, liberated and to see all those stacks of bodies and emaciated people. Um, it was, uh, and his job there was l less to cover and report on the war than to gather evidence, motion picture evidence of what happened there. So people could never say that it hadn't happened as they, some still do today. And in the footage, uh, th they made two films that were shown at the Nuremberg trials where the, the Nazi leaders were, were brought to justice. And, and these films were shown in the courtroom. Uh, no one could say that it hadn't happened. It's so important to uh, making sure. And like you said, even today, there's some we tried to deny and that, and that record's there, which is awesome. Um, to make yeah. sure we don't forget. Um, so let's let's focus for a minute on your pursuit of helping filmmaking be seen as an art form. I mean, because that's that is what an awesome. I it's hard for me to imagine, and it, it's really cool because thanks to your focus on preserving films of the past. I mean, uh, you know, it's people can you know go back and see it, all these stars of the past, and you know one of um, one of the early. Uh, um, I think he was your second one who was recognized because you had uh, um, James Cagney at, as one of your American uh, Film Institute uh, um, people, your Lifetime Achievement Awards that you gave him. Yeah. And uh, um, and I'd, I, I want to come back to him, but I mean, it's, uh, um, how did you, I mean, could you talk about where the idea came from for the American Film Institute? I mean, why you pursued yeah. seeing it through to implementation? Because that's, if you, if you got distracted or anything and didn't do it, I mean, I, I'd hate to think of where we, you know, some of these things would have dissolved and disappeared over time. Well, I was having my career in Hollywood. I was directing television, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Peter Gunn, among others, um, and working with my father on the diary of Anne Frank. And Edward R. Murrow, the great broadcaster who I admired so much, President Kennedy asked him to run the United States Information Agency, the agency uh, uh, that told America's story abroad. They had the Voice of America for radio and a motion picture division that made 300 documentaries a year for showing overseas about the United States and our policies. And he asked me, I was, uh, I was just 29 uh, to come back and run the motion picture division of USIA, which put me in the world of President Kennedy and uh, the New Frontier, which was a life-changing for me, great experience. Um, and President Kennedy uh, talked a lot about the arts. He believed in the importance of American culture. And when the National Endowment for the Arts was started, it was the first support, public support for the arts. And they they knew what to do generally about ballet. There are ballet companies and opera companies and symphony orchestras that needed grants. But as someone said, you can't give a grant to Warner Brothers. Uh, so uh, I suggested an American Film Institute and the idea was adopted. And then I was asked to start it and run it. Um, and I did, and two of our major uh, challenges were to provide education and training for a new generation of filmmakers. And the cornerstone of our effort was the rescuing of American films because films that were made up to 1950 were all made on nitrate, a kind of film stock that deteriorated and would catch on fire. So many of the, uh, half the films that had been made were lost or missing, um, feature motion pictures. And we started a rescue program. And today there are 
40,000 American motion pictures, feature-length pictures in the AFI collection at the Library of Congress. And those are the films you see on Turner Classic Movies and, you know, if you're seeing films about early American cinema. So th those were two of the main things we were doing. And uh, we started the, the AFI Conservatory, which today is thriving and considered the best film school in America. And um, so the AFI, I was very happy that I was able to be in. I'm still involved with it, but I, I ran it just for 12 years. Well, that was a long time. I hadn't anticipated it taking that long, but that's what it took to get it on its feet. And it's, and it's so amazing because, you know, there, there's, I mean, because in, in the beginning, you kind of, you kind of have to really convince people that film belongs with other art forms, didn't you? I mean, they did. You know, there was a sort of snobbishness in the East that I discovered that, you know, people would say, well, you know, they go to the theater and they go to the symphony. We really never go to the movies. And it was that that has turned around and now movies are fully regarded as, um, uh, at the centra, center of our culture. That's awesome. I mean, just listening to you talk about uh, the, f the filming that you did with, uh, you know, the, the Alfred Hitchcock TV show. I mean, there's someone who's known for, you know, the use of black and white to emphasize, you know, images and colors and, uh, you know, thoughts and all that sort of stuff. And that's cool that, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that all this stuff could have disappeared if nothing, if it hadn't, if you hadn't uh, saved them. It, it, it really is. And there were the Museum of Modern Art and George Eastman House uh, were active in this work. And Martin Scorsese started a film foundation later that is, is still working to preserve films because there are ones that get away if you're not careful. I can only imagine. I'm a huge fan of a lot of the early uh, um, comedians. And so... Uh, um, really? Oh, yes. <laughs> Laurel and Hardy, Buster Keaton, um, the early uh, Dean and Jerry movies, and, uh, um, as, you know, just any any number of uh, these. Um, yeah. Abbott and Costello are major ones for me, too. But, you know, the, yeah. when you look at uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin, I don't know how I left him out, and just all those com comedians that, I mean, they're, they had to be on that nitrate that would have, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. And uh, it, is, it is just, and, and, how, how funny those films are today. I mean, the, the lasting value of good work. You mentioned Laurel and Hardy. Uh, my father's first job, I mean, not his first job, but his first important job as a cameraman was filming the Laurel and Hardy uh, two reelers, uh, the famous ones that we all love. Uh, and he, he was also a gag man working with the director, Leo McCary. So there, he said that it was uh, Laurel and Hardy, San and Oliver Hardy, uh, Stan Laurel, that uh, taught him that comedy could be graceful and human. And if you see my father's comedies, uh, Woman of the Year, uh, The More the Merrier, The Talk of the Town, Astaire and Rogers in Swing Time, it's graceful comedy. It's not screwball comedy uh the humor comes out of the characters that's so awesome that is and it's cool that uh um he had mm -hmm. he he was working with uh with some of these biggies from the past so i just um just just amazing the impact there uh you know because the, the some of that uh the stan and and uh oliver you know they're uh um some of it's so subtle <laughs> I mean, it's just a look that the one gives the other one. Exactly. <laughs> that, that. I love it. Um, all right. So, you know, one of the things you mentioned just a minute ago is that, uh, I mean, you and your family have spent time with some amazing historical personalities, Hollywood legends and political figures. I mean, I, I, my father was a huge fan of, of Jack Kennedy's and, and I got to, huh. I would hate it if I didn't ask you, I mean, what was it like to talk with Jack and Bobby? I mean, it, uh, I mean, there's got to be, you know, what's something that's a, like a favorite thought or memory about them that you might have? Well, President Kennedy 
um, just had such energy. Um, and, you, you know, Washington had never been like that and really has never been quite like it again. Just the vitality of the new frontier. And he was such an inspiring figure, had such great humor. And he had this, uh, it was a kind of poetry. He he loved great language and and his speeches were uh, aspirational and he, 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 both he and, and Bobby carried around a book of Greek, each had a book of Greek poetry. Uh, and, and I wrote down one, President Kennedy said once, he said, uh, uh, in fact, he said it more than once, it was something he enjoyed making the point um, that the ancient Greek definition of happiness uh, the fullest use of one's powers along lines of excellence. And I wrote that down. And then suddenly I realized that Ed Murrow and President Kennedy had given me Greek happiness. I was there in the government, having brought a lot of young filmmakers in to make these documentaries, which were gaining a great reputation. They called it the, the golden age of USIA filmmaking. Um, and we were trying to do it with excellence. So President Kennedy just had that kind of resonance. And when um, the idea for the Kennedy Center Honors, uh, the, 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 the AFI, we had our offices in the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, which is his memorial, and words carved on the wall when I proposed the idea for the Kennedy Center Honors, I told the chairman of the Kennedy Center, I said, the idea is carved on your wall. And he said, well, well, how do you mean? And I said, President Kennedy's words. I look forward to an America that will not be afraid of grace and beauty, that will reward achievement in the arts the way we reward achievement in business or statecraft. And that was the basic idea for the Kennedy Center Honors, to acknowledge these people, nice. to reward them for their contribution to American culture. Uh, so to, uh, to work with and be acquainted with President Kennedy was, uh, a, a, you know, a very, actually a changing aspect in my life. I was influenced by him. That's awesome. I can only imagine. I you know, over the years, you've earned 15 Emmys. I mean, could you talk about challenges to get commercial television to a level of high quality, <laughs> you know, and to get others to appreciate it? Because, I mean, it's it's always, it's kind of always kind of had that, uh, you know, not not really accepted as being an art form also. So, Yeah, well, I, you know, again, being around my father, I was very, you know, excellence and the test of time you know, that, those kind of attitudes. And so the kind of things I wanted to do bent in that direction. And so the idea is how do you convince a, a television network or a television sponsor that, that something can be really uplifting or uh, controversial, uh, purposeful and get an audience, you know, they, uh, there's a tendency to aim at the lowest common denominator. And uh, I was just able to persuade them, A, to do the AFI Life Achievement Award and the Kennedy Center Honors and some of the minis. I made two miniseries, both of which won the Emmy for the best miniseries. And uh, so, it, you know, it's I would say it's really having an idea of what you want to do and to believe in it and to believe in it in a way where you convince, can convince other people that it's worth doing. And uh, so that was really my challenge. And, uh, um, and I found people who were willing to accept it. That's, that's awesome. It's, it, Cause I can only imagine the kind of the, the battles that you're, you know, cause for a long time, a lot of the TV shows were, you know, at some point had pies in the face and uh, you know, <laughs> the different types of comedy that would happen was a, kind of a certain level um, of comedy and uh, and 
entertainment type shows where you had uh, you know a little bit of everything going on at, at one time, as opposed to really telling serious stories and such. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well but there was a, a, a lot of good stuff going on, but everyone who who was doing that kind of work had to convince people to do something that was different. You know, if it was Hill Street Blues or uh, whatever, you know, n- new idea that was tremendously successful, it, it, it took somebody taking a chance. That's awesome. I, you know, I, let's, let's go back to uh, AFI for a minute. When you think of the AFI, um, could, could you talk about the Lifetime Achievement Award? I mean, do you have part of these memories that you're most proud of? I mean, one of the, the story about uh, you talking about James Cagney and, and something that he said, um, it just is amazing as well as some of the other stories. But uh, can you talk about uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award, maybe you know, something you're most proud of in, the, in, in those awards? Yeah, well, that, that too was a new idea uh, that, that, you know, there were Oscars every year and awards for the movies of the year. But uh, our idea was to honor lifetime achievement. Again, this phrase that from my father, the test of time. And so we gave the Life Achievement Award not for what you've done this year or last year, but for your work over a career. Uh, that uh, that you know making films that stood the test of time and the first recipient was the great director John Ford and then James Cagney then Orson Welles Betty Davis Fred Astaire William Wyler John Huston Sidney Poitier uh, so many wonderful and it, it goes on still today um, so yeah, and then I had, I so admired these people and to find a way to present them on television, their work. And so p- people could understand and appreciate, uh, particularly the directors who were less prominent, you know, at least as personalities, but to see what Alfred Hitchcock's work was and William Wyler's and uh, uh, John Huston, uh, Billy Wilder. Uh, and of course, being associated with those people and knowing them, um, I call the last chapter of my book, Get Evasia. And I think you referred to Jimmy Cagney. And when he came to receive the Life Achievement Award, he had been off the scene for quite some time. He'd had this great career. And we went to dinner, my wife, Elizabeth and I, at Henry Mancini's house, Henry and his wife, Ginny, and Jimmy Cagney and his wife, Billy, um, two nights before the dinner. And you know, Jimmy was at five foot six or seven, but you know this straight posture, and you know he's a wonderful dancer and a great gangster. You know he had a great range in his work. But we were finishing dinner, and he was about to leave, and we had been talking about the event two nights to come, and he of course had to make a speech at the end of the evening. And he said, well, gosh, he said, George, he said, I'm going to need a get evasia. And I said, well, what's a get evasia? You know, and he said, oh, he said in vaudeville, he said, that's that little step you do just before you leave the stage. So they remember you. And he tapped out this little step. Um, and uh, I love that. And so I called the last chapter of, of my place in the sun. I call it get evasia. <laughs> I love that. That is, it also tells you that, uh, um, there's so much more to him, <laughs> which is what's so cool <laughs> as it, that he would share that with you as, uh, and then do it, <laughs> do something unique. So what a, what a cool experience there. That is awesome. I, you know, one of the things that, uh, let's shift to the Kennedy center honors, which you founded and you created, I mean, what was your ultimate purpose there? What were you, what were you really hoping that was going to make it different than um, other events? It, 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 simply to fulfill the words of President Kennedy, to, not to be afraid of grace and beauty, uh, to let the public understand who these great artists are. And when we were when we were doing the the Kennedy Center Honors, which I, I did for twenty, uh, actually thirty seven years, 
Um, the key was we made these biographical films that were just five minutes long, but they told the story. You know, many, you know, Aaron Copeland and Arthur Rubinstein, many had come to America from Europe fleeing Nazism. You know, but telling their life stories or uh, Leontine Price, you know, the great soprano, you know, African-American who did not have opportunity but became America, their life stories so that people would understand the challenges and the glory of what they did. And then that would lead into the entertainment that uh, we provided in the form of tributes. Uh, but to let the public enjoy and understand better the importance of the performing arts and the pleasures it brings to the world for those who choose to enjoy them. That's so awesome. And it does just that. And uh, uh, just kudos to you for doing, um, creating these two major uh, you know, recognition of uh, people's um, lifetime commitment, lifetime achievement, um, focus on uh, on the arts and performing and, and bringing it to everybody's eyes. I, I love it. Uh, thank you. I, you know, toward the end of your book, um, you recall finding your father's wartime diary, and you share this statement, life is a journey and it's most interesting when you're not sure where you're going. You used this in your 1981 film about your father. Could you talk about this comment from your father and what it means to you? Well, I guess I was, I decided after he died, he kept all this stuff. He had a storeroom, a beacon storage on Ventura Boulevard in North Hollywood. He kept his war memorabilia, the Laurel and Hardy scripts, uh, cans of film, books, everything, and including a big eight foot high cabinet with all of his awards. You open this thing, Oscars, all this glittery stuff. It wasn't in his office. It was in a cabinet at Beacon Storage, which was just, he was not a person who uh, enjoyed displaying that sort of stuff. Um, but when I, I, I looked at it, when I, after he died, he, he had told me, that that I he was leaving it to me and um, and and then I realized that I wanted to make a film about him and then in among the diaries I found there I found that phrase that life is a journey and it's most interesting when you're not sure where you're going and I also found how it applied to my life as well as his um, and the film is called George Stevens a filmmaker's journey which is going to celebrate its 40th anniversary next year. It was just on Turner Classic Movies two weeks ago. And we're, again, doing a nice restoration of it. And it's going to be shown widely. Uh, but it, it was, uh, I think, it was so well received. And to be able to tell your father's story in a way that moves people and inspires people, uh, it, it certainly is among the most satisfying, rewarding things that I've done. That is so cool. I appreciate you sharing and talking about that. And what an interesting uh, to have gone into that uh, that storage that storage room and sifting through everything. So uh, awesome. Uh, you know, uh, and, and say the film uh, begins uh, with wonderful music by the composer Carl Davis, but you're in color, you're panning across this storeroom and you see a Nazi street sign and, a, and, and scripts and bound scripts that you pan over the titles of all these films and these storage cabinets. Um, and, and that's how I opened the film. That's awesome. I love it. Uh, you know, we're getting close to finishing up. And one of the things that I, I just wanted to ask you your thoughts about this. I mean, during the pandemic, many theaters closed their doors. Um, it's apparent that many film watchers have decided that streaming's okay for them. By the way, not for me. I, <laughs> I, I need to be in an with an audience and hear people react to what's going on. And, you know, most recently I saw a film where they actually began it with the actors out of costume, out of character, 
thanking the audience for seeing a movie in the theater, which I thought was cool. Oh, what a good idea. Yeah. Do you have any, you think the movie industry will recover from this or any thoughts about where the future? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a big issue today. I mean, there's a strike going on uh, because the, the writers feel that they are in this new world, not fairly compensated. And they see the executives of the streaming companies making uh, $50 million a year and 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 they're really finding it hard to make a living. Um, so that's that's underway. And that also relates to this thing of streaming versus movie theaters. And I, I think we're beginning to see a little uh, comeback for movie theaters. And I do hope that people will um, get back to this idea of the pleasure of seeing films uh, in the company of others on a huge screen with great sound, because that's really the most rewarding way to see uh, a film. Um, and and streaming it 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 brought new kind of gusto to storytelling. You know, some very good filmmakers went to the streaming companies and make made work that, you know, uh, succession right now is going to end four years. Um, you know, so there've been, been a very good, good work done. And one of the benefits of it was that you could see films without interruption of commercials, you know, which can just make it so hard to watch a, a story that you have to then sit and wait for three minutes while they sell stuff. Um, and now, unfortunately, streaming is saying, oh, well, we can do advertising too. So now they're going to give have advertising. So, you know, it's, the, it's always been the problem that the money people control uh, filmmaking. And the great filmmakers have been the ones who've been able to stand up against that and make Lawrence of Arabia or you just name your favorite movies, you know, that, 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 that when my father was making films at Paramount, I remember they used to say, well, the audience has the mentality of 14 years old, 14 year, 14 year olds. Oh. Um, and he didn't believe that. And he had respect for the audience. And I think all of the great filmmakers have respect for the audience. And, uh, you know, then it's not just about money. Uh, so that tug of war is going to go on. And there are a lot of really talented people making films and we're going to depend on them to have their way and uh, continue to make films that respect the, uh, that, that show a respect for the audience. That's so awesome. I am so hoping, I mean, there's nothing better than, you know, to be able to see and hear and because you can see the nuances, by the way, of, of what, a, oh, yeah. what they're act, what they want you to see and stuff like this more when you're, you know, in an environment that's, it's meant to watch the big screen and uh, I, and to hear it. And, you know, and I, there's nothing better than some scene that happens that makes the audience gasp or, uh, or cheer because you weren't yeah. expecting something or, or feel what was going on when a, you know, there's just so many of them that uh, it's it's just a lot different if you're sitting there watching it on a <laughs> on a screen in your living room. And, and as you suggest, with people around you who are discovering it with you, and somebody may get the joke before you do, you know, and cause you to laugh. So, no, it's definitely something we want to preserve in American life. Oh, you have that right. Oh, so right. Uh, you know. George, one of the places that I'll, I'll have uh, in my uh, show notes is I'll have your website, um, which is uh, George Stevens, J-R, so for junior.com. Um, is there any other places where you'd like to send people to go find, uh, whether it's your, your book or uh, other information? Well, about certainly, you? I, I, I think a lot of your audience will enjoy this book because it is so full of stories and, and uh, with interesting people and, and kind of aspiration and, uh, and, uh, you know, it's fathers and sons and my mother, 
uh, it's stories that people relate to. And it is called My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood in Washington. And it's set of Amazon and bookstores and Audible and, you know, whether you want to read it or see it digitally or listen to it. So there are lots of options and uh, I invite people to enjoy it. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure, George, talking with you. I can't thank you enough for just the impact that you and uh, your family, your father, everybody had on on us. I mean, I, you know, your your book, uh, My Place in the Sun, the uh, you know, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood in Washington is a must read. If you want to know something about U.S. history, oh my gosh, this is the book and the stories. Just a note, I got to I mean, there's nothing better than like one of the stories that you tell, which I won't go into detail, but uh, where you're worried that you hung up on Orson Welles, um, to, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I loved that because I think you had a power outage or something happened and, and, uh, um, to, uh, just a you know, conversation you have before, uh, you know, what ends up being James De- Dean's last night. And, you know, it's, uh, it's just amazing. Yeah, it was great knowing Jimmy Dean, he was a, uh, James Dean was, died at age 24 but he made three wonderful movies that uh, stand the test of time and he's still with us most definitely most definitely Um, thank you so much and uh, uh, kudos for everything you've done and all we'll continue to do and uh, thank you so much uh, George it's a pleasure talking with you I really enjoyed it thank you hey you have been listening to Teaching Learning Leading K-12 a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.